0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 90, How to Hold a Parliament. So, last week we left everything in such a lovely place, Gaveston's broken body, hundreds of thousands dying from famine and disease, you know, the normal medieval MO. So, I thought we'd leave the chronology there just for a little bit longer and spend a bit of time talking about Parliament. After all, we spend an inordinate amount of time referring to the darn thing, so it'd be nice to have an image of how it all worked. Then, before the end of the episode, we'll get the narrative restarted again, and you'll be pleased to hear that we should be able to end on another death, so hurrah for that. So, Parliament. It just so happens that there's a rather remarkable document which described in some detail the ABC of how to hold a Parliament. The document is more than a bit controversial, so for a long time it was thought to be a forgery. Now, as it happens, it's undated, but historians are now sure it's genuine and pretty sure that it comes from Edward II's reign, probably from a chancellor official called William Ehrman. But we have to be a bit careful about the document. While well, presumably all the stuff about who did what, when, why and how is accurate enough, in theory at least, there's a little bit of fantasy, or at least stuff which is, shall we say, aspirational. This concerns the rights and powers of the commons and their role in the whole mix. The author's views very probably don't reflect real politics and power, but one day they will. So, we'll point out the bits to be cautious about along the way. So, how to hold a parliament? The first step was to tell everyone that you are holding a parliament, and when, and where, and that sort of thing. This needs to be done in advance, 40 days in advance if possible, in the form of a writ. As to who ought to be summoned, let's make a distinction here between the traditional king's council, or magnum concilium, and a full parliament. The great council was essentially a meeting of the king and his barons, both secular and ecclesiastical. No one at the time would have made a distinction, there was just parliament. And sometimes you invited knights and burgesses of the towns as well. But let's today talk about a full parliament. Right then, so the king sent out a whole lot of writs. To whom then? Broadly, you might think of three groups, the church, the laity and the towns. But you might also think of two other dimensions, so people who were there to represent themselves alone and people who were there to represent others. So for the church, the king would always need to summon bishops and archbishops, the barons of the church, if you like, who would always be there and were present simply because they were the magnates of the church. But then he would also tell them to elect representatives of the deaneries and the archdeaconries. So you'd have another set of clergy there, the so-called proctors, all waving a bit of paper that was their warrant for attending. They're not there because of the amount of land they personally held or any job they personally have. They're there as representatives of others. The same thing then happened with the laity. The barons would come of their own accord but two knights would be elected for each shire to represent people. The distinction between knight and baron really comes down to money, though obviously it would in practice be a little bit more complicated. But a knight had to have £20 worth of land and rents. To make a baron, it's 20 times 20, i.e. 400. And then, of course, would be two representatives from the towns. Now, there are a few wrinkles with the town thing. First of all, there's a specific requirement to ask what's called the barons of the Sink ports, which, as we covered in an earlier episode, demonstrates quite how important these ports were. Secondly, there are citizens who elect their representatives. Now, citizens in this context means the free men of cities, such as London, York, Norwich, Bristol, that sort of thing. And then finally, there are representatives of the normal towns or boroughs, i.e. representatives elected from the burgesses of all the towns. There's clearly a sort of hierarchy to all this, as evidenced by the expenses that had to be paid. So, your barons of the sink ports would get half a pound, ten shillings, each day, though there's a nice little note that says this would, of course, be varied in the light of the, quote, abilities and standing of the person concerned. OK, so you're a bit of a thicky so you only get five shillings, okay? Knights only get half a mark, so that's something like eight shillings, as do the citizens of London and York, while the Burgesses, well, they are clearly the lowest of the low, so they get a poxy five shillings a day. Of course, if you were really posh, you didn't need any expenses at all anyway. We have other documents about how all these elections actually happened, which in themselves are rather interesting, it's pretty clear that your average local heavyweight would basically expect to send his mates along, no messing with this free and fair election tribe. But it's equally clear they didn't always get away with this. For example, there's a case in 1320 of a lord called William Le Gentil being accused of electing representatives without the consent of the whole community. The likelihood is that there wasn't a structured voting process, the names appeared by consensus, as it were. So then... There are these interesting comments made in the document along the lines of the representatives being far more important than the barons and the earls. This is a very interesting comment to find in a medieval document. Now, fair enough. It's at this point that a large, fat element of fantasy begins to creep into the document, as I mentioned earlier. But the very existence of the comments are in themselves interesting. The author's view was that after the king, the commons were the really important component of the parliament – And this was because the earls and the barons are simply there of their own, while the knights, burgesses and proctors of the clergy were there as representatives of the whole community of the realm. Here's the relevant quote. It is to be understood that the two knights who come to Parliament for the Shire carry more weight than the greatest Earl of England, and in like manner the proctors of the clergy carry more weight than the bishop himself. Well, one day this will become true, but it'll take some pain and a bit of time. Actually, it's worth mentioning that the Magnets were truly rubbish attenders of Parliament. It's easy to think that the Magnets were a bunch of power-hungry crazies constantly snapping at the King's heels and trying to use Parliament to put one over on him, but that's simply not the case. If it was, they'd have come more often. On one occasion, three Earls and 24 magnates were threatened with forfeiture of their estates if they didn't turn up and still only of them could be bothered to get out of bed, while the other 17 said, whatever. In 1315, a perfect opportunity for a bit of king bashing, as Edward wallowed in the defeat at Bannockburn, some petitions couldn't be answered because so few magnates were there. When they did come, though, bear in mind they didn't come alone. They came with large numbers of liveried retainers, In 1312, Lancaster came with 1,000 horse and 1,500 foot, for crying aloud. OK, so the big day arrives. Parliament could still be held anywhere. As long as there's a room big enough to put them in, that's OK. Given how small most towns were at this stage, the holding of a parliament must have been an extraordinary event. All those magnates with their entourages, those representatives looking for somewhere to stay... There would be a massive crush of petitioners outside the hall, all desperate to get someone's attention. There is apparently a post, Chief Doorkeeper of England, and his job, and indeed that of his team, is to keep everyone outside under control and make sure that only bona fide petitioners get in. Now that must have been a job with enormous potential for a bit of palm greasing, if you know what I mean. Edward I transformed Parliament by giving these petitions airtime. They were called Bills at the time, hence the modern terminology in Parliament, whereas you may well know, a new piece of legislation moving through Parliament is called a Bill. When it's got Royal Assent, it becomes an Act. For the moment, it's the King who initiates all legislation. In the future, these petitions will turn into Parliament itself doing the legislation, but that's some way in the future again. Anyway, so big crush. Inside the hall there would be all these representatives but also a group of royal officials, the Chancellor, the Treasurer, Chamberlain and the Barons of the Exchequer, the Royal Justices and a group of clerks and the King's household knights. The King would have sergeants at law with him. These guys aren't judges but they're eminent lawyers who, like lawyers down the ages, make plenty of money and will at some time probably become judges. Outside, again, there's also the chief crier, because all those people milling around outside need to be controlled and informed as Parliament goes on over the days and weeks. So, bit like a town crier, only for Parliament. Just to be clear, there's no weeping involved. So, we're ready to begin. The king comes in with all his folk and officials. and Gradually, Parliament is built up. Essentially, we have five groups. On the first day, the citizens and burgesses are called... And if they don't tip up, their town is fined. Next, it's the Knights of the Shire on day two. And on the third day, it's the Barons of the Sink Ports, the Barons and the Earls. Then on the fourth day, it's the Proctors of the Clergy. And finally, on the fifth day, last but definitely not least, it's the Ecclesiastical Baronage, as it were, Bishops, Abbots and so on. And so we are all assembled and ready to do business. There is a seating plan of sorts, and it's up to the steward of England to make sure that everyone sits with their peers. We'll have none of this social mixing and social mobility stuff here, oh dearie Mino. The king sits in the middle of the main raised bench. On the bench with him, it's the church that rules the roost. So there's the Archbishop of Canterbury and his leading bishops on the right-hand side, and the Archbishop of York and his leading bishops on the left-hand side. There's a hierarchy to these things, so leading bishops on the right are London and Winchester, and on the left are Durham and Carlisle. Then further away from the king we get the lay magnates and so on. Just below the king, at the foot of his raised bench, are his officials. It's all very hierarchical, and explicitly so. The document even described the six grades in order. King, bishops and abbots, proctors of the clergy, lay magnates, knights, and at the rear as grubby, Nasty, reviled men of commerce, the townsfolk. Each of the group will have their very own clerk to write stuff down and make sure their deliberations end up on the record of proceedings, which is known as the parliamentary rolls. There is only one door allowed, presumably so that everyone knows who's there and who's not. It helps cut down on any monkey business. Meanwhile, on the first day of Parliament, the chief crier of England, or one of his underlings, would have appeared outside, within what is known as the Pale of Parliament, and told everyone that Parliament was up, and they should come and present their petitions, and if they don't do so, by the fifth day, they'd have missed their chance. But before proceedings really kick off, this is a Christian nation, so we get a sermon from a prominent cleric. And after this, the Chancellor of England or the Chief Justice will get up on his hind legs and deliver the pronouncement, i.e. he'll tell everyone what this Parliament is for and why they're all meeting. While he does this, everybody except the King stands up. And then it's the King's turn at last, and his job is to give a bit of a lecture, to tell them all to work hard and that sort of thing. From then on, we're into business. Every day, business starts at half an hour past prime. Prime, you may remember, is the first hour of the day after sunrise. So for the sake of argument, let's call start time 6.30am, a a time when I'd like to bet most modern MPs are just negotiating their morning cup of tea. If it's a feast day, then they start half an hour earlier at 6 to make way for prayers. As far as business is concerned, there's a strict order of priority. Number one, anything to do with war – if there's a war on, or anything else to do with the king or his immediate family. Interesting that they're all in one category. War is the king's business. Number two, general business of the kingdom. Making laws, executing judgments, that sort of thing. And number three, individual matters. And petitions fall into this bit. By Edward II's time, petitions had become an absolutely core part of parliamentary business. So we're not talking just one or two petitions put together by outraged of Tunbridge Wells, we're talking about tens and tens of petitions from individuals and corporations, mainly at this time by the gentry, church, towns or upward. The peasantry haven't got round to the idea yet, but no doubt they will. So Parliament will trawl through, making judgments, expediting old ones and going through all the new petitions. Each petition is allocated to a royal official, whose job it is to make sure that decisions are implemented and guide the petition through, though let me be clear about the fantasy thing. In practice, of course, the average king would make it quite clear which of these petitions should unfortunately get lost in the filing. However, it's not exactly clear what all the representatives really did while all this was going on. Whatever contribution they made, apart from voting, isn't recorded. Very probably, they caught up on a bit of kip. Parliament was still very much a royal creation, called by the king and driven by him. But having said that, the English Parliament was a very different beast to the French. In France, the Parlement became a meeting of household officials and lawyers. However poor magnet attendance was, the English Parliament by 1327 was initiating legislation on a large scale. Parliaments were supposed to be a bit like cricket test matches used to be. You had to finish all the business before they could end but once the last shout had died away, the crier would proclaim the dissolution within the pale of Parliament and if no one objected, then it's all over and everyone goes their separate ways until the next bun fight comes round again. So there you go, a little DIY guide to having a Parliament. Don't try this at home. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. So, where were we with our story? We were, I believe, in the aftermath of Gaveston's execution, or murder, depending on your point of view. Edward was without doubt filled with grief and fury in equal measure. His instinct was for war, to shove the whole thing down the barons' throats and make them pay for what they'd done. And for a while, civil war looked like a racing certainty. In the west and north, Lancaster, Warwick and Hereford skulked nervously, refusing to come to Parliament until they had safe conducts and had agreed a peace treaty with the king. Meanwhile, the earls of Pembroke and Surrey, disgusted at how Lancaster and Warwick had betrayed their trust, were firmly in the king's camp and ready to do whatever he asked to clean themselves of the dishonour. And then, shuttling between them like a blue-bottom fly, were the earls of Gloucester, Richmond and Hugh de Spencer. But eventually the king realised he didn't have the wherewithal nor the resolution, to be honest, to crush the barons yet. He'd have to eat his revenge cold at some future date. There's a slightly sad exchange with Gilbert de Clare, the Earl of Gloucester, that went like this. Gloucester said, King, if you destroy your barons, you indeed make light of your own honour. To which Edward, rather feebly, replied, There is no one who is sorry for me. None fights for my right against them. At this point, if my daughter had been in the room, there'd have been a slightly acerbic request to man up. But fortunately, she wasn't and so presumably instead there was just a round of sympathetic murmurs and tutting. There's also a theory that Edward was softened by domestic events, because on November the 13th, 1312, at the age of 17, Isabella gave birth to a bouncing baby boy, a bouncing baby boy who will be the English definition of the Middle Ages, the epitome of chivalry, with a reign that was half glory and half tragedy. Ladies and gentlemen, Edward Third is in the building, and not before time. Maybe the arrival of a son softened Edward's grief and allowed him to come to terms with what had happened. Negotiations continued and finally began to bear fruit. The politics of 1312 and 13 are pretty torturous, between two sides extremely suspicious of each other. In December 1312 it finally looked as though they'd come to an agreement. The barons were to come to Westminster to see the king and be pardoned for their role in Gaveston's death. In return, the barons agreed that they'd discuss granting an aid to raise money for war in Scotland. But the big thing was that there was no mention of the ordinances or of removing the king's evil counsellors. But Lancaster and Warwick still hadn't met the king, and so, despite this agreement, the air was not yet cleared. The poison of distrust was still flowing freely through the veins of the body politic. In the middle of this, Isabella and Edward hopped off to France to visit the in-laws. I mention this little peregrination for no good reason, other than that I was interested by the description of the royal banquets. Now that Gaveston had been shuffled off his mortal coil, Philip IV was all smiles for his son-in-law again and wanting to make sure he had a good time. When I reached child-rearing age, I remember being outraged at the concept of party bags, which hadn't existed in my youth and which seemed pretty much to be about bribing small children to come to your own child's party but Philip the Fair's gifts to Isabella and Edward was the party bag to end all party bags, costing something like £2,000 and including 94 oxen, 189 pigs and 200 pike. I couldn't even get one pike in one of my children's party bags, though I shall try. And if I can, they'll be so pleased. Anyway, back in the 14th century, Philip had a series of tents set up in the meadows surrounding Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Guests were served by attendants on horseback, and Edward's croth player, William Craddock, was there to amuse and delight the crowds. A croth, ladies and gentlemen, is described by Wikipedia as an archaic stringed instrument, and I mention it particularly since the surname Crowther is apparently derived from this name. And so it appears that an archaic podcaster may be the descendant of such a crowd-pleaser. Meanwhile, the king's armourer had constructed the castle of love for entertainment between courses, or intercourse entertainment, as you might call it, which I am hoping is more innocent than it sounds. Either way, clearly they all had a good time, since the following morning Edward and Isabella couldn't get out of bed on time to meet the French king. The visit was a success. Again, with the thorn of Gaveston removed from the diplomatic flesh, all was happiness, and Philip remitted any penalties he had been alleging were owed to him in respect of Gascony. When they came back, a parliament was halfway through. Given that the King was late, the opposition barons had legged it, muttering and grumbling that the King had kept them waiting on purpose. This mistrust continued. In September, for example, the barons organised a tournament on the way to a parliament as a cover, so that they could have a huddle and a bit of a chinwag. Edward responded by trying to ban the thing, but when he failed to do that, he got the Earl of Pembroke to go along and put his ear to the tent wall. Back and forth and back and forth they went, and really it's not until October 13 that we can really draw any kind of line under the whole affair. In October, finally, Lancaster, Warwick, Hereford, Arundel and others came to Westminster Hall, asked for and received the King's pardon. The King gave them the supper party in a bit of ado, and the following evening the barons invited him round to their place in return, and on the face of it all were smiles and harmony, though really nothing was either forgotten nor forgiven. 1312 and 13 had seen a significant improvement in Edward's position. The ordinances were well in the background, and he was holding on to his new councillors, and seemed to be able to make them as evil as he'd like. He had his own man, Walter Reynolds, elected as the Archbishop of Canterbury, and gradually his finances had improved. His finances had been seriously not good, and if a credit card company had been involved, the bailiffs would have been on the doorstep. But loans had helped, from the ever-present Italian financiers, this time in the form of one Antonio Pesagno. By 1314, Pesagno had loaned and received back about £104,000, and had another £6,000 to come in. All of this meant that our Antonio was all over the King's Court like a rash oiling his way round the household making friends with all his money. Clearly the barons didn't like this, given that his name comes up specifically in the ordinances under the evil councillors bit, but this doesn't appear to have worried Antonio one little bit. An agent of the rival Italian firm, the Frescobaldi, noted that Antonio is now in such a position that he fears nobody and is so generous in court that everyone likes him. More remarkable was a loan by Pope Clement V, who specifically wanted to help Edward keep the barons off his back. By the end of 1313, then, Edward had shown he wasn't a complete no-hoper. He'd played his position pretty well, waited the barons out, and the essential strength of his position as king had helped him. On the other hand, he'd done absolutely zip about the situation in Scotland, where things continued to go from rubbish to rubbisher. The author of The Life of Edward II was not impressed, not impressed one little bit. Behold, our King Edward has now reigned for six full years and up until now he has achieved nothing praiseworthy or memorable except that he has made a splendid marriage and has produced a handsome son. Burn. Which brings me sure as eggs is eggs and night follows day to the Scottish campaign of 1314 and Bannockburn. As a red-blooded Englishman, this is not something I've been looking forward to, let me tell you. Which makes it particularly pleasing that I won't have to suffer the indignity of telling the story of the battle itself, because Zach has already done it as part of his "When Diplomacy Fails" series. You can find it as episode 61a of the History of England. But I guess I will just have to take it on the chin. I'll have to cover the build-up and the aftermath. So, the last time we were in Bonnie Scotland was in 1311, when Edward had made a desperate attempt to shore up his personal authority and hold on to Gaveston. He'd wandered around Scotland, burning stuff and so on, but the Scots had skulked, denied the English battle, and then watched them leave, and torched the north of England behind them. Since then, in the interests of English self-flagellation, the progress of the war is a story of daring-do and boys' own stuff. It's a story also of Scottish sneakiness, or clever strategy, depending on your point of view. The problem for Bruce and his mate, the Black Douglas was that although it was all very well for them to skulk when the English appeared, the flip side was that the English kept recapturing strongholds in the form of key castles like Perth, Stirling, Roxburgh and Berwick. Not challenging the English in battle and maintaining a mobile guerrilla existence meant that the Scots lacked a siege train. So the plan was to take castles by sneakiness, and then often, rather than trying to hold them against the inevitable English counterattack, destroy the castles deny these strong points to the enemy. Bruce knew that at some point if he was truly to be king he'd need to take the English on in the field but it would be when he was good and ready. So back to sneakiness. We start with a failure actually and a question. What do Berwick and Rome have in common? The answer is that both were saved from capture by noisy animals. With Rome, it was the geese, of course, and with Berwick, it's barking dogs, alerting the garrison to Bruce and Douglas, sneaking up on them to attack in the night. But after that failure at Berwick, there's a stream of crucial victories, and the reaction from England is absolutely zip, eating away at the morale of their garrisons. Early in 1313, Perth Castle was besieged by the Scots with little success, and so they turned to sneak. They pretended to break their ladders and abandon the siege, and then while the English were giving each other high fives, came back at night and finished the job. Next was Dumfries, to a more traditionally long Siege of Starvation, then Linlithgow, which was real Robin Hood stuff, with a haywain containing eight hidden Scots jammed into a gateway to keep it open. The key castle of Roxburgh was taken during a surprise night attack in 1314, and then Edinburgh Castle, seemingly impregnable, was taken in March 1314, after Bruce and his attackers climbed Castle Rock at night. All of these castles were then totaled, to deny them to the English. And then in March 1314, Stirling Castle, the link between Lowland and Northern Scotland, came under attack by Robert and Edward Bruce. If Stirling fell, it would be curtains for English rule in Scotland. As it happens, Edward had finally been stung into action well before the time this news arrived, In November 1313, he had been granted a tax. In December, he summoned Lancaster and seven other earls to be at Berwick the following June. He borrowed money from Pessanio and he marched north with an army of maybe 20,000, larger than any English army since his father's Welsh campaigns. This was not just war of reconquest. This was an attempt to completely re-establish the credibility of his reign. But the fly in the ointment was the absence of four key earls. Lancaster, Warwick, and Arundel sent the bare minimum of men. They claimed this was because the campaign hadn't been agreed in Parliament, but the likelihood is that actually they feared a royal victory. A resurgent Edward might just think that maybe he didn't forgive them the death of Gaveston after all. The Earl of Surrey, John of Warren, had different reasons for not coming. Digression alert Surrey's relationship with Edward was complicated. In 1306, at the age of 20, he married the 10-year-old Jeanne Barr. Their marriage wasn't a success, which probably was mostly to do with Warren, given that he'd taken up with his high-born mistress, Matilda. By 1313, Warren was trying to divorce Jeanne and they both lived apart. Since Jeanne was the king's niece and a friend of Isabella, and Edward actually took Jeanne in and gave her rooms at the Tower of London, this made for, as I say a complicated relationship between Warren and Edward. Warren was also being threatened with excommunication at the time, so on balance he probably felt it better to lie low. Warren's efforts to marry his mistress would come back to have other political impacts later. The lives of the great and the good can be so complicated. Anyway, the point is that Edward's key opponents had not been involved in the defeat at Bannockburn in Scotland in 1314 when Edward returned with his tail firmly between his legs. The Earl of Gloucester, the last of the Clare family, had died at Bannockburn at the age of twenty three in fine medieval fashion. Edward had made the fatal error of accusing him of cowardice for his excellent advice on the eve of the battle not to fight. So, Gilbert had rushed on the enemy and I quote, like a wild boar, making his sword drunk with their blood. Like most wild boars who madly rush well armed and well prepared hunters, the result was not good for the Declare family. The Clares leave their name in County Clare and Ireland, in the title of a Saw Doctor song, and in Clare College, Cambridge. Goodbye, Declares, or at least to the mail line. Anyway, our Gilly had been a powerful supporter of the king and now he was gone, and Edward was in the soup. Now Lancaster was a man who fully believed in the value of a kicking a man when he's down, and so the medieval boot was immediately applied to the royal kidneys. At the September Parliament, Lancaster flexed his muscles. The word ordinances came up. The words evil councillors were used frequently. A tranche of household officials were let go, given the opportunity to find alternative employment and so on. To be fair, Lancaster didn't simply replace them with his own placemen. They were experienced administrators who came in, but the basic message was that Edward's room for manoeuvre had once again been closed down. Gaveston's body had been lying embalmed and unburied all this time at a Dominican priory, unburied because he was excommunicate. In a ceremony on June 1315, he was finally laid to rest at Edward's place at King's Langley, covered in £300 worth of cloth of gold. It was an act of defiance on both sides. The King's enemies, Lancaster and Warwick, refused to attend. By Edward's side were men like Hugh Despenser and his son, the younger Hugh, whose support for Edward would in the end bring him down. So that's it for this week. Next week war in Ireland and the lead up to the final confrontation with Lancaster. My thanks to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group or indeed to all of you for listening. Good luck everyone and have a great week.